This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. everybody and welcome back once again to dirty sexy history i don't know about you guys but lately i've been avoiding a lot of social media especially twitter just because it seems you know like more of a dumpster fire than usual on top of the always healthy discourse around reproductive rights and the ongoing covid crisis now with the spin-off no one wanted monkeypox for the past couple of years there's been a huge focus from certain people celebrities, tabloids, and even people within the government, on attacking trans and gender non-conforming people. I'm sure you've noticed. You can't log on without seeing it. It seems like they blame gender non-conforming people for just about everything from Supreme Court decisions they weren't involved in to gas prices and climate change. The argument that underlies a lot of these inflammatory accusations is implied, if not always explicitly stated that gender nonconformity is a modern issue, just like birth control, women's liberation, and social justice. (sighs) Guys, it's bullshit. We've talked about trans identities dating back to ancient Mesopotamia in episode 6, then about female husbands in episode 25, but this is really only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to trans history. To really tackle the subject, we need an expert. That expert is Dr. Kit Hayam, author of Before We Were Trans, A New History of Gender. This book is a truly global history that looks at what it meant to be trans or gender nonconforming in different time periods all over the world. And the answer, well, it might not be as simple as you'd think. In this episode, we're going to talk about that, as well as the link between trans history and anti-racism, and we're going to geek out a little bit about a couple of our favorite gender nonconforming people from history as well. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Ham, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so glad to have you. Thanks so much for having me. It's really exciting to be here. That's great. Now, I've just finished reading your brand new book, Before We Were Trans, A New History of Gender. What an absolutely fascinating project and so huge. How did you go about researching such a thing? Thank you. I'm really glad you found it fascinating. It is huge. It's a book that's about the global history of gender nonconformity, and clearly that's enormous. And what I really wanted to do when I was putting this together was to resist any kind of idea that I was going to write a chron- kind of chronological history of gender nonconformity from the beginning to the end, as if there is such a thing, because I really didn't want to a create the idea that there was a kind of linear narrative where we were going from some at- one at- some one attitude to another. Um, And I also didn't want to impose the same kind of narrative on all of the different um, national and cultural contexts that I was looking at, um, as well as, of course, the scope of that being kind of unmanageable. And so what I wanted to do instead was to think about the different factors that complicate how we look at the history of gender nonconformity. So the relationship, for example, between gender nonconformity and fashion or gender nonconformity and the social role that someone has in society. 
and instead to find stories that spoke to all of those different kind of complicating factors and to draw them from lots of different cultural contexts. Um, and in terms of the research process, I wrote this book during 2020 and 2021. So it was a challenge. I wasn't able to access um, things like physical archives. I was reliant a lot on the kindness of libraries and friends who had access to different kinds of electronic resources. But in many ways that lent itself to a kind of creativity, I guess, a kind of um, desire to look at the sources that were available and find new kind of transaffirming ways of reading those. Um, and so I think that forced me into a particular kind of creativity and a particular kind of rereading history that maybe I wouldn't otherwise have um, approached in quite that way. That's absolutely fascinating. I couldn't believe how much ground you covered. It really is a global history. Thanks. That was certainly the plan because what I really wanted again, I suppose, to resist was the narrative that trans history is something that's a white Western phenomenon. Um, but equally while doing that, I was really keen not to impose Western concepts of gender or of transness um, on cultures where those aren't accurate or appropriate. I really didn't want to kind of recapitulate what effectively is a colonialist dynamic um, of imposing and classifying and taxonomizing um, people from cultures um, that are not my own and that don't have the same concepts um, of gender. Um, so I really wanted to resist doing that and instead to look at different cultures' experiences of gender nonconformity on their own terms. And that was kind of a really important political principle for me, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was, it was so fascinating. There are so many stories that, I mean, I'd never even heard of before. It was wonderful. Now, the, the first thing that stood out to me, I mean, there's so many things, uh, but I didn't realize that our kind of modern Western ideas of like a gender binary, you know, like everyone is male or everyone is female. It only dates back really to the 19th century. You were talking about that a little bit in the introduction. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So one of the things I talk about in the introduction is particularly the construction of a binary idea of sex, um, the, the idea that everyone's body will fit into either of these two categories, and the construction of our contemporary idea of sexual dimorphism is something that comes straight out of 19th century eugenicist thinking. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea that white people's bodies are more perfectly divided into male and female than the bodies of people of colour. Um, and understanding that racist history of sexual dimorphism was really important for me in thinking about what it means to write an anti-racist trans history um, and the importance of the connection between anti-racism and trans liberation. Um, and then that led on to thinking about the way in which scientific thought was used to then create the idea of a gender binary and particularly to um, artificially gender lots of biological characteristics that bodies have. Um, estrogen and testosterone, for example, they are just hormones that all bodies produce, um, but they were labeled as male and female hormones um, because of society's investment in the idea that people would be perfectly divided into those two categories. Um, and then when scientists discovered actually everyone's bodies produced both of those hormones, um, there was this sense of confusion and resistance um, and people still sort of haven't really fully got their heads around that and fully deconstructed the idea that we gender those two hormones um so yeah I was really keen to make that process kind of a bit more visible 
Yeah, it's really fascinating. Uh, we've talked about the 19th century eugenicists a little bit before on this podcast, uh, specifically when it comes to um, ideas like, like BMI and kind of ideal weight and all of that. I tell you what, those guys have a lot to answer for, <laughs> but you know, that's probably a subject for another day. Oh my God. Ugh. Anyway, less said about that, the better. So <laughs> you have uh, several great examples of people who were assigned female at birth, taking on masculine identities, either permanently like the Pharaoh Hatshepsut uh, or temporarily, like you mentioned, the estimated 400 soldiers in the American Civil War. So history is full of these people, but historians tend to present them as like women forced into trousers as opposed to people who have agency of their own. Uh, what is the difference between who you are and what you do? That's an incredibly complicated question, isn't it? Because first of all, it's not something that's been stable throughout history. So if in the early modern period, for example, if um, European people talked about someone changing their sex, they could mean either someone doing something to change their body or someone taking on a role that was associated with a different gender. So someone who was assigned female at birth and took on a masculine role in a military context, for example, could be referred to in that period as changing their sex, um, which shows really clearly the ideas of who you are and what you do are being kind of conflated and treated differently um, from how we might understand them today. But when I was telling those stories about gender nonconformity and social roles, I was really keen not to erase the fact that a lot of these people are incredibly important to women as examples of ways that women could defy gender roles um, and ways that women could access um, different forms of independence, I guess, um, through living as men for part or all of the time. Um, and instead to think about the fact that histories of gender nonconformity are always relatable to lots of different groups of people. Um, and we tend to have this sense that if we read these people as trans we're taking them away from women's history or we're reclaiming them and I think actually that kind of that capitalist idea of um claiming or owning figures from history um is very much part of a problem that we need to try and dismantle um I really wanted one of the things um as you know that I talk about in the book is seeing people in history in terms of the sense of community and solidarity that we feel with them um, rather than in the sense of certain groups own this history and certain groups don't and we have to fight over it because there's no limit to the number of people that we can have a sense of community with and that we can invite into our communities. Um, so when we look at those people who are assigned female at birth and who lived as male for part or all of their life in situations where they took on masculine coded social roles, we can see them as having community with trans history and with women's history and as those not being mutually exclusive. I think. Right. It can, it can be both. You don't have to be kind of like on one side or the other. Exactly. Yeah. That is so interesting. Now um, I've, I've studied sex and history for a long time. Um, and I'm always very conscious of the danger of, of potentially misgendering historical figures who might not fit into our modern understanding of, of gender identity. Uh, what is the best way to approach this? I, this was something I thought a lot about um, when I was writing um, in part because of not wanting to misgender people, as you say, also in part because of that problem I talked about of not wanting to impose modern and or Western ideas of transness um, on people in the past, um, which I think is not a respectful way to approach people. I found it really, I don't know if you've seen the um, brilliant trans history film Framing Agnes, um, which I had the opportunity to watch recently, um, but one of the things that the amazing trans historian Jules Gill Peterson says as part of that film um, is it's not our job to assume we know people in the past better than they knew themselves. 
-hmm. And I found that an incredibly meaningful kind of principle to work on. Um, so my uh, that meant that I had to approach pronouns in the way that I referred to people in my book really, really carefully. Um, I made the decision to use they them pronouns to refer to the majority of people in the book. Um, and I wanted to use that pronoun not necessarily in an actively gender neutral way, to, so not to say these people definitively identified as neither male or female and would claim this pronoun in the way that, you know, I claim it for myself today, but to use it in a passively gender neutral way, to say I refuse to gender these people in one way or the other. And also with a nod to the fact that they, them is, are used as plural pronouns in English as well, and with a nod to the kind of multiplicity of gender that these people, um, that these people carry as well. Um, the exception to that was when we had people, um, we had evidence of people describing themselves really clearly as being men or women, typically trans men or women um, in the um, 19th and 20th centuries. Um, and I used he, him or she, her pronouns for those people as a way of, ref of respecting that really clearly articulated gender identity. Um, but predominantly I chose they them for those reasons. In chapter two, you talk about the perceived effeminacy of early modern courtiers. And, you know, we can kind of look at like what they were wearing and, you know, kind of all the all the kind of lace and the long hair and the makeup and all that. And our idea of what that means of effeminacy is very different from what they thought it meant. Uh, can you explain the difference? Yeah, absolutely. This is a really fascinating thing when it comes to interpreting gender in the past that we need to really take a step back and avoid our kind of modern assumptions about what these what these words mean, of course. So, um, yeah, while we might today think of someone effeminate or calling someone effeminate, saying something about their propensity to perhaps be attracted to men, effeminacy in the early modern period was much more about being attracted to women and being so attracted to women that you became woman-like yourself because you were prioritising sexual attraction and looking really beautiful to attract women over masculine pursuits such as caring about politics or preparing for war or um, engaging in deep religious scholarship or any of that. Um, <laughs> because so ideas of effeminacy in the early modern period were about instead um, being really kind of sexually indulgent and being much more engaged in um, caring about your appearance um, and in as much as sometimes they signaled, yes, you might be attracted to men, it was more just as a kind of general, well, you care so much about sexual attraction that you'll probably give in to that no matter who you're attracted to, um, than it was about a kind of specific implication of homoeroticism in the way that it might, um, that it might signal today. Right. So sexual desire itself was almost seen as like more of a female trait. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that's a really good way of putting it. Um, and particularly particularly being subject to sexual desire rather than if you think about you know the early modern ideal being perfect self-control over all of your appetites um then allowing sexual desire to lead your actions and to dictate your actions well, yeah was absolutely seen as a feminine trait in itself wow, that is just mind-blowing to me that is so interesting isn't it oh my goodness now of course uh talking about the, the early modern period I'm, I'm really into early modern history so of course a couple of the figures that you mentioned uh who really stood out mall cut purse Moral Cutverse is one of my favourite people in the book. I'm also um, an early modernist by background. So yeah, I, I get equally nerdy about this particular period of history. Um, so Moll was assigned female at birth, um, but known to present in a masculine way um, 
in early modern London and became a kind of quasi-celebrity because of that, because their gender nonconformity drew lots of attention. Um, they used it to facilitate independence, they used it to facilitate petty crime, they were arrested for pickpocketing and things like that and for associating with criminals. Um, and they also really kind of exploited the celebrity status that they got from it. Um, so they performed um, effectively stand-up shows, um, musical stand-up shows, um, at London's second biggest theatre, The Fortune. Um, and they also really kind of calculatedly manipulated the fact that gender nonconformity for women and people assigned female at birth in that period was associated with sex appeal, basically because if you were wearing men's clothes, you could see a lot more leg than if you were Absolutely. wearing women's clothes. <laughs> um, so they would do things like in their stand-up shows, they were um, accused of making kind of lewd comments along the lines of, well, you might think I'm a man now, but if you came to my bedroom, you'd soon find out I was a woman. Oh. <laughs> um, and also, brilliantly, um, and this is a story that I tell in the book, of um, effectively flashing people in St Paul's Cathedral on Christmas Eve. Um, Legend. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so they're a brilliant figure who really tells us a lot about the way that gender nonconformity in this period was understood um, in terms of what it might say about your sexuality um, and also in terms of the kind of responses that you got to it. Oh, incredible. And then, of course, the other one I wanted to ask you about was Julia Lombardo. And Julia is really linked to Moll in interesting ways in terms of the association between sexual attractiveness um, and gender nonconformity. So Julia was a courtesan in early modern Venice. Um, and we know a little bit about Julia because of the will that they left behind and the inventory of their possessions. Um, and what we find in that will is, first of all, we find that Julia was working in the sex trade in part to, to support their disabled sister. And that was a really important um, factor that led a lot of people to engage in sex work in that period was supporting their family. Um, and we also learn that Julia owned a mixture of male and female clothing. Um, and that is because kind of standard conventional dress um, for courtesans, for kind of high status sex workers um, in early modern Venice was this mixture of male and female clothing and particularly a skirt which you could lift up to reveal breeches underneath. And there are loads of reasons why people might have um, dressed and expressed themselves in that particular way. So. It might partly have been, like I said, because it's revealing your legs and it's kind of sexually attractive to people. It might also have been to signal that um, kind of more queer coded sexual practices were available like anal sex. Um, and I think it's also really important to acknowledge that that kind of gender nonconformity might well just have been what felt most comfortable for particular people. Um, I really think that when we're looking at tens of thousands um, of sex workers, engaging in this kind of gender nonconformity. There's gonna be lots of different kind of individual subjectivities. And sex workers are a group who really get kind of homogenized and dehumanized in a lot of the history that's done about them and a lot of the way they're still talked about now. Um, so it is, yeah, it is still really important to um, be thinking about their individual experiences and to be, um, to be respecting their individuality. And part of that is respecting that they will have had different kinds of relationships to that gender nonconformity as well. Yeah, and, and uh, different ideas about what they want to wear. And, and of course, that's how fashion comes into it, too. And that is so interesting to me. 
um, you know, even just practicality. So, so sidebar, this is not related or important for anything, but um, I used to do all these historical costume tours and I would wear um, like pants underneath my big skirts and things. Um, and I wasn't trying to show off my legs, no one saw them, but for me, it was, uh, it was more practical. You know, you could kind of walk comfortably for, for longer periods of time. So, you know, instead of like combinations, I'd be wearing like yoga pants, you know, <laughs> so it works, right? Anyway, I mean, of course it's not the same thing, but uh, that's the first thing it made me think of. Um, all right, so it's and speaking of uh, entertainment, you know, thinking about mall cut versus kind of comedy show and all that. So gender nonconformity has been a staple for entertainment for centuries. You know, we're thinking about like Tudor theater, um, even like modern panto shows, and even you know, you talk about World War One internment camps. So where does the entertainment aspect fall into the study of trans history? So I really wanted to think about. A couple of things, I guess. First of all, the way that gender nonconformity on stage has always provided the audience with demonstration of how gender expression and gender identity can be at odds. Um, so provided um, a kind of illust a kind of blueprint for the way that you can express yourself in a way that doesn't necessarily reflect what's underneath. Um, and also that people haven't always thought about that in the same way. So in the early modern period, um, putting on clothes that are associated with a different gender was one of those factors that was perceived to change your sex and to affect um, actually who you were underneath as well. And then I also wanted to think about the experiences of the performers and the ways that um, gender nonconformity on stage has for a long time provided a really important opportunity for people to present in a way that they wanted to. We have brilliant case studies from um, kind of late 19th and early 20th century sexology of trans people saying, when I was younger, I used the stage as an opportunity to express myself. Um, or I was really, really envious of the people who got to play the female roles on the stage um, because that was actually how I wanted to live the whole time. Um, and so what that may, means is when there were cases of kind of really widespread gender nonconformity, like in the internment camps that I talk about um, where tens of thousands of people assigned male at birth were locked up together, performed um, various theatrical productions in which it, obviously people assigned male at birth had to play the um, female roles, and where also some of those people continued to live as female off the stage as well. When we get that, those cases of really widespread gender nonconformity, that will have provided opportunities for those people who secretly actually had always wanted to present in that way to present in the way that they wanted to. And for some people also, it will have been kind of a surprising experience that the way they understood their gender changed through that theatrical process. You have a lot of really interesting accounts um, of people who've performed different gender roles on stage, talking about how when they're in that performative space, they feel differently about their gender. They feel they have temporarily transformed um, into a different gender. and. That's really fascinating, right? The idea that kind of temporary trans experiences and fleeting trans experiences can be created by this kind of theatricality. I think that's really yeah, cool. It is, that's very cool. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, I suppose it is an opportunity to, you know, just inhabit another identity, even if it's only kind of temporarily, it's, it sounds like an important outlet. That's good. All right, so uh, one aspect of the book also, of course, that really stood out to me was the focus or emphasis, I suppose, on non-Western cultures as well. I know we mentioned that a little bit earlier, but of course I wanna ask you about it. Um, can you share some ways that gender has been defined in other cultures? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I was, yeah, really keen to use this book as an opportunity to explore the kind of arbitrariness of that Western gender binary and the processes by which um, and we imposed it on a lot of colonized cultures. Um, so one example um, that I give in the book is of um, people in East Asian cultures um, who have been gendered differently in part because of their sexual practices. Um, and I talk um, about people in the Middle East and also about um, early modern Japanese people known as Wakashu, um, who were people assigned male at birth, but gendered neither male nor female because they were seen as people who could be penetrated by men. Um, and so sexuality and sexual practices were a key component of the way that gender was understood in that sense. Um, and, um, and we see that in the book, I talk about ways in which that's reflected in other cultures as well. Um, but what we, what Western historians have typically done is kind of reduce those people to effectively just gay history. And that's not really what it is because they're seen as gendered differently because of their sexual practices. Um, and I think it's really important to take that at face value, even if, you know, I write in the book about the sort of discomfort I initially had around that, about the fact that researching this history and talking about people being gendered differently because they're penetrated felt a bit like saying to be female is to be penetrated. It feels incredibly regressive or mm. about saying that, you know, gay couples have to have a man and a woman, um, which is, you know, clearly a homophobic idea in Western culture, but in cultures where actually your sexual position and your sexual practices do affect how you're gendered that's not regressive. It's just really important to take those cultures on their own terms. Mm. Um, yeah. And then of course you also talk about the two-spirit people. Can you tell us a little bit more about that idea? Yeah. So I write about two-spirit people, particularly in a chapter where I'm thinking about the spiritual dimensions um, of gendered experience and the way that thinking about gender as purely a human and purely a secular phenomenon can't account for everybody's experience of gender. Um, I tell the story of a person called Kaushima Nupika, um, who transformed into a man as part of a spiritual revelation and then acquired powers of prophecy as part of that transformation. Um, and about the name that they chose when they um, transformed into a man translates into English as gone to the spirits. So really, really clearly demonstrating that, yes, it was a gendered experience, but also inextricably, it was a spiritual experience. Um, and a lot of two-spirit activists have really resisted the kind of reduction of two-spirit identity to either gay or lesbian or trans because it's none of those things because for many people it is an inherently spiritual experience and I also wanted to take the time to kind of understand those spiritual dimensions um, and write about those spiritual dimensions of two-spirit identities because of the way that white non-binary people often talk about two-spirit people as this kind of trump card that proves the validity of our own identities without really taking any time to understand what it is like to be a two-spirit person or what kind of activism we need to do to promote the liberation of two-spirit people um, and what kind of responsibilities we have if we're talking about that history. Um, and so really going deeply into the spiritual aspects of that kind of identity was important for me as a kind of corrective to that sort of tokenistic treatment that two-spirit people often get in um, the way that white trans people talk about them. 
Oh, absolutely. And there's so much to consider, but I think you did a really fantastic job. That was an amazing chapter. Um, now, of course, you also make the important point that uh, challenging Western constraints of gender in the present day is essential to challenging racism. Can you elaborate on how trans liberation and anti-racism are linked? Yeah, absolutely. This was really important to me, particularly as a white person writing in global history. I kind of reflected a lot on what the responsibilities were that I needed to take on in order to avoid essentially kind of colonialistically using those stories of people of color for my own um for my own ends and for the liberation of white trans people which wasn't what I wanted to do so um so I wanted to make the case for the intrinsic relationship between anti-racism and trans liberation um I wanted to do that first of all by pointing out some of the stuff that I talked about before about the links between racist new genesis thought and our contemporary gender and sex binaries and by emphasizing the um impact that colonialism has had on the way that people in colonized cultures have been able to express their gender and the way that they've changed the way they express and live their genders um to respond to interactions with colonizers um but I also wanted to really pay homage to some of the black feminist thought that's had an important impact on the way that I think about gender um which has pointed out that there is there has never been such a thing as a unified you know uh, as a monolithic male or female socialization so the way that we experience gender and the way that we gender others is always about race just as much um as it's about their bodies um or their genders and um to, in particular, I found um, the work of Emi Koyama really helpful, who points out that if we see, if we try to exclude trans women from women's spaces because their experiences are different, that suggests that all other women's experiences are the same, and that is a racist assumption. Um, and so in talking about the way that gender has never been stable and has never been fixed and has never been um, essentialized or tied to the body, it was also really important to think about the way that gender is co-constituted by race um, and by cultural experience um, as well. Right, and that is so important. And of course, uh, you also mentioned, and we see these every day, unfortunately, you see a lot of articles in British media and media over here too, increasingly, that the idea that uh, trans identities are just this purely modern invention, that they just never existed before, right? And people do use this argument to try to justify transphobia and, you know, regressive legislation, all these things going on right now. We're at this weird point in history where suddenly it's political if you try to set the record straight on these issues. Does real history have any chance of affecting the current political climate? You know, it, can can history save the world? I mean, maybe not on its own, but I do think it has a role to play. Um, I think history is always political, and the first step to dismantling these arguments that own that certain kinds of history are political the setting the record state straight as political is refusing to engage in that debate about whether or not this is political and instead to say no all kinds of history are political and we just choose what kind of politicized history we're going to do we choose what the um political ideologies that underlie our history making are um and clearly in the conversation that we're having we're choosing um a 
kind of history making that's oriented towards social justice, justice and that's oriented towards liberation. Um, so I think, I think, first of all, that's really important. Um, but I think that raising awareness of the fact that we might not necessarily be able to talk about uncomplicatedly about trans people in the past, but that we can talk about trans history, that we can talk about history which shows us that what it means to be a man or a woman or what gender is has always been contested and challenged and redefined and reshaped can really help us to fight against some of these narratives that what we're doing now it, are redefining womanhood or manhood or gender. Um, actually, we have always been doing that. That is a continuous process that is um, going on right now as well. Um, and so I do think there's really important potential in history um, to do that work. Um, and also the importance of history as a source of community and solidarity and um, to combat the kind of isolation that a lot of queer people um, and particularly trans people feel in the present day is also really important. We need um, sources of community and joy to be able to do liberatory political work, right? Um, and so I really wanted that to be something that this book was for as well. Absolutely. And it's beautiful. You know, and you read back through that and you realize all these people have these different experiences and, you know, you, you don't feel as alone, do you? That's certainly how I have always felt about history, I guess. One of the most important things that led me to this book was my experiences as a teenager where I might not have known anyone in my real life who felt like me, but I did know people in history who felt like me. And that really kind of got me through. Um, and I wanted this book to provide some sources of that kind of solidarity um, for people in that situation now as well. I think that's beautiful. That's wonderful. And I'm sure that people will, will feel that as well when they're reading the book. It is such a great book. Mm -hmm. Now, our listeners love our bibliography. So of course, I have to ask you, would you be able to recommend any further reading on trans history for anybody interested? Yeah, I'd love to recommend, first of all, um, a book which I I'm still sad that I didn't get to engage with in this book because it came out about a month after I handed in my final manuscript. <laughs> um, but it's called Transhistorical, Gender Plurality Before the Modern. It's a fantastic collection um, of really, really wide ranging essays about trans history um, in the medieval and early modern period. Um, and I'd wholeheartedly recommend that. Um, there are a lot of really foundational classics that I rely on in the book as well. Leslie Feinberg's Transgender Warriors, incredibly influential for me. Susan Stryker's Transgender History, um, which I'd recommend too. Um, and I suppose finally, for thinking, and this is a book that I talk about, or a couple of books actually, that I talk about quite a bit um, in Before We Were Trans, particularly in the conclusion, for thinking about the kind of emotional and political relationships that we have um, to queer history and thinking about what that history can kind of do for us in our present moment um, and what we can do for people in the past as well. Um, Jen Chaplin's book, My Autobiography of Carson McCullers, um, which is very much about the process of being a queer person engaging with queer history, and also Shola van Reinhold's novel, Lote, um, which is also about that process and about the impact of racism on the erasure of particular kinds of queer history, um, are also books that I'd wholeheartedly recommend um, and I hope that people have as joyous experiences reading those two um, as I did. Oh, I'm sure they will. I'm going to look up those, uh, those books myself. That's great. So what's next for you? Where can we find you? So um, if I'm on Twitter at KRHayam and 
what I'm I'm working on several different projects at the moment. I'm working um, on a toolkit which enables museums to unlock hidden histories of gender, um, which I'm really excited about being able to launch very, very soon um, in collaboration with some brilliant colleagues. So definitely keep an eye out for that. Um, and I've been thinking both about how we might use fiction and the novel to explore further some of the trans histories that I've looked at and before we were trans, um, and also about histories of sex education and how people have acquired knowledge about diverse forms of sexuality and gender um, kind of under the radar in the past and writing DIY histories of sex education. So those are all things that are percolating in my brain. If people want to um, follow me on Twitter, I'd love that and people can keep up to date with what I'm doing as well. Um, and I'll share any events that I've got around before we were trans um, on there as well. Oh, fantastic. Well, we will absolutely keep an eye out for it. Well, Dr. Hayam, you've been an absolute pleasure. This has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Hayam for joining us today. Their new book, Before We Were Trans, A New History of Gender, is out now. You can find them at kithayam.com or on Twitter at krhayam. I'd also like to thank our amazing patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Ayana DaCosta, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Rose Little, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Shannon Roth, Lily Sire-Lewis, Icy Sedgwick, Kelly Simon, Sylvia Van Eyck, and Denny White. If you would like to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. This week, we'll also be posting our video interview with Dr. Hayam for our patrons, so check that out if you'd like to see just how awkward I can be when I'm not edited. I'll probably regret saying that. Anyway, if you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe, or you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dirty Sexy History, where we will, of course, also post the photos from today's show. If you would like to contact us or read more posts from our archives, check out our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. See you next time. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast by Jessica Kale and Dr. John Jenkins. You can find us at DirtySexyHistory.com. <laughs>